0: Hey there, if you would like ad-free and early versions of these episodes, as well as bonus episodes, movie club episodes, and lots more, head on over to patreon.com slash Craig and friends.
1: Make believe, is not pretend, we might be here, but we're on the mend. it never starts, it never ends, welcome to Craig and Friends, welcome to.
0: Hey there, and happy, happy Halloween to you. I hope it's a very horny Halloween. I hope you're getting in all the things that you couldn't do last year. I plan to be doing that later, but more about that afterwards. What we're going to talk about now is my chat with the legendary Bill Mosley, who you know, of course, from Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, House of a Thousand Corpses, Devil's Rejects, Three from Hell, and the list goes on. Bill is a true journeyman actor, and a lot of legends are, particularly in the horror genre. And you're going to hear about some incidents that are going to kind of shock you in terms of what happens to a working actor in the business, and some workplace safety issues that might give you pause. We talked about six or seven years ago. Army of Darkness fans, you'll be thrilled. We get into that. We even mentioned Father Dowling's mysteries. So you can't ask for a more comprehensive chat with Bill Moseley, Right. So, without much further ado, here is my chat from a few years ago with the fabulous Bill Moseley How did you get into acting?
2: Um, you know, I acted when I was a kid. I grew up in uh, the town of Barrington, Illinois, and um, uh, my parents, uh, my mom especially, was theatrical. My dad was a, uh, uh, you know, I think he liked to act when he was in college, but he ended up uh, working in, uh, you know, in a company that uh, built. Tank cars. So even though he was uh, very much a uh, Midwestern Republican uh, industrial guy, um, you know, he loved to act. And in my small town, there was uh, something called the Barrington Play Reading Group. And every couple of months, a different family would host a dinner and then uh, a staging of a Samuel French play. Uh, and, uh, people would actually dress up and put on makeup, but they would actually hold uh, the play in their hand and, and, uh, read. Um, and so I was, uh, drafted, uh, when these productions would happen, I was oftentimes drafted, drafted as the kid. So that was a lot of fun. I was in plays like, uh, the lottery and a thousand clowns and sunrise at Campobello. Um, So that kind of got me interested in it or got me comfortable uh, with it. And um, and I was in school productions, uh, both in uh, grade school and then uh, in high school and then in college. Uh, But when I graduated uh, back in the 70s, uh, really just, you know, there was no sense in my family that uh, acting was any way, shape or form a career goal. So I graduated with an English major, and uh, so I, what I did was, uh, really, until my mid thirties, I worked as a freelance writer. I first was in uh, advertising in Boston as a copywriter, and then I moved to New York City and uh, did freelance writing for different magazines. It wasn't until probably, let's see, I bet you it was nineteen eighty four, maybe. Um, that um, I uh, was working on a ranch one summer. I was still living in New York, but uh, I was working on a ranch that my uh, dad used to uh, go to as a dude. And um, I was working with a kid one day. Uh, This kid was, uh, you know, like maybe 16, 17 years old. And he uh, he was the son, he was the adopted son of a funeral parlor owner in Geneseo, Illinois name was John Wright and uh, John loved to uh, pound the sugar you know as a teen he was uh, you know eating the frosted flakes and drinking the mellow yellow and fudge sickles and you know he was constantly wired on sugar and when we would uh, work side by side and do manual labor under the hot Wyoming Sun uh, he would go into what I called sugar deliriums mm-hmm. and what that meant was that he would just kind of he had this kind of motor mouth and uh, just uh, start singing snippets of top 40 radio hits and uh, cartoon voices, uh, commercials, all kinds of crazy stuff. It would just blather out of his mouth and uh, I would turn a deaf ear to it. And uh, one day we were working and uh, summer of 84 and he's going, uh, you know, "Ah, Captain Crunch, whatever he was doing. And, And all of a sudden out of his blather came, Texas Chainsaw Manicure. <laughs> and I heard that. I was like, what? And uh, I went back to the uh, bunkhouse after our work was done, and I sat down and I I wrote out uh, about a five-minute uh, scenario of a woman goes to a beauty parlor, gets her hair done, and she's under the dryer, wants a manicure, and uh, a beautician calls to the back for a manicure, and all of a sudden you hear a saw start up and the silver door slide back and out comes Leatherface and starts to uh, saw on the woman's fingers. So went back to New York city. I, I, I fleshed it out, so to speak. I uh, gathered a bunch of pals, probably, I think we, I think our budget was about, you know, 1500 bucks. We, uh, uh, my director and I uh, found a, a beauty parlor on Staten Island, Sonia's hair fashions and we gathered a bunch of friends uh i don't really know if any of them was an actor but uh, we went out one sunday to sonia's hair fashions and shot the texas chainsaw manicure and uh in it i gave myself a cameo as as the woman's husband and what happens is leatherface comes out saws her fingers she screams she faints and uh the beautician and the hairdresser you know slap her kind of wake her up and she's like no
1: oh oh
2: oh." (laughs) she looks down and she has a perfect manicure and so she comes out of the beauty parlor to the pickup truck where her husband me is behind the wheel of the truck and um, she, she shows me her manicure and i go hey that's great honey we should celebrate with some head cheese, <laughs> and I'd actually gone out and bought some real head cheese, which doesn't look like much, but it's very funky mm. and uh in fact in one of the takes, I actually even licked it and uh, and so um uh, I had that I was trying to sell it in New York uh, you know to Saturday Night Live to a show called Fridays at the time i mean there was there was just nothing, there, were, there really was no market for it. There was no internet back then or anything that was, you know, wasn't like a YouTube or anything like that. So I really had no place to take it.
0: Was this when you had video snacks going on public access?
2: Yeah, there was video snacks, but this was, this was, I'm not sure if this was actually maybe uh, before video snacks. I mean, we never, we never even thought about putting it on video snacks. So well, that, that would have been a perfect video snack, by the way. <laughs> um, but, um, so I ended up, uh, basically eating it. I, I took a job in a restaurant to try to pay some of pay off some of the money because I, I incurred a lot of expense uh, in post-production because we did it at a place called Broadway Video.
0: Oh, the Lauren Michaels place.
2: Yeah. Lauren Michaels company. So it's the SNL production facility. And I had a friend there who invited, he said, Oh, you know, bring it over. We'll, we'll do it for free. And then, well, we have to charge you, you know, as soon as we got there, you know, turned into, uh, you know, a couple G's. And, uh, so I didn't have any money. So I, I ended up, uh, you know, working in a restaurant as a waiter, uh, just trying to you know, raise a little money so that I could defray some of that expense. And, you know, you find out what a producer is. Producer is the guy that gets the guy or the gal who gets you know stuck holding the, you know, holding the bills. <laughs> so, uh, I, uh, we used to work for a magazine called Omni, which is a science magazine that was put out by the same company that put out Penthouse, and uh, you know the Gold Key Bob Guccione, and um, and I was sent um, on a junket from New York to Los Angeles to cover the making of 2010, the Space Odyssey sequel, and uh, I went out, I got put up in a hotel. I had a friend from uh, high school that was actually a, a Cracker Jack uh, screenwriter at the time in L.A. A guy named Peter Seaman, and Peter and his uh, partner Jeff Price had written things like uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Doc Hollywood, and so they were you know hot young writers. And uh, I went to dinner with, with at Pete's house uh, when I was out there covering 2010. And I brought along a videotaped copy of uh, the Texas Chainsaw Manicure. Yeah. And uh, I showed it to him. And he loved it and said, you know what? My partner and I have an office right now across the hall at Paramount from Toby Hooper, who directed the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And, uh, and he said, uh, would you like me to, why don't you leave me this copy of the manicure and I'll walk it over to him. And I said, you know, sure, why not? I mean, I had no ambition. I had no thought of anything happening from it. But I figured if Toby liked it, it would be like a Pyrrhic victory, at least, even though I was still, you know, I was still in debt <laughs> to Broadway video. <laughs> so I said, sure, okay. So he, he did. He, you know, went to work. He walked it into Toby's office. Apparently, I found out later, Toby uh, put it in the, you know, the VHS player and watched it and loved the manicure. Mm-hmm. And then he called his producing partner in. He, they were uh, working on Poltergeist at the time, and uh, the producing partner was good old Steven Spielberg.
0: Oh, right, right. And
2: uh, he watched The Manicure, and he loved it too. And they both especially loved my cameo as the hitchhiker. So, um, you know, a couple of years later, and, oh, Peter, had, uh, my my buddy Pete had also given me Toby's home number. So he told me to call on Toby in about a week, and see you know, what? what was up. And I did that. And Toby answered the phone, which I've come to realize was in itself a miracle. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I introduced myself. I said, yeah, I did the manicure. He said, Oh, I love the manicure bill. I loved it. And then he said, uh, now, who, who played that hitchhiker character? And I said, well, that was, that was me. And he said, well, you know, if I ever do a sequel, I'll keep you in mind. Well, two years went by. And then one night, you know, living in New York, you know, struggling. Uh, I, uh, got home and the phone rang and it was a guy claiming to be Kit Carson, the, uh, the screenwriter. And, uh, he wanted to know what my home address was. So he could send me a copy of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre screenplay. And, uh, and he told me to take a look at, uh, this character Chop Top. So, uh, you know, I said, oh, okay. I could tell it was long distance because you could, you know, back then you could hear kind of a sizzle on the line. Uh-huh. And uh, anyway, I think that was about the time where, you know, I still was trying to act a little bit. I was mostly making my money writing, but I was very freelance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that I, either that day or, or recently around that time, I had actually uh, tried out, uh, there's a... Newspaper, kind of a magazine. I guess they call it uh, more like a newspaper called Backstage in New York, and it's got listings for all kinds of theatrical opportunities, and uh, uh, among them uh, a lot of NYU student films, and you know all kinds of different castings like that. Sure. So I, um, I had recently, right before Kid had called, I had answered a I I had answered an ad wanting a dead body. <laughs> Uh, for some student film yeah, and, uh, I, I didn't get the job. <laughs> uh, the reason being at the time I, I smoked cigarettes and I, um, uh, the, uh, the audition was up a four floor walk up, you know, apartment building. And by the time I got to the top floor, I was, you know, my chest was heaving and they said, okay, just lie down and be very still and, and pretend you're dead. Oh right. And so I I lay down but my chest was uh you know still pumping. Right. So I did not get the job. <laughs> I was a little discouraged at the time. And uh, uh, but uh sure enough the uh the screenplay arrived in the mail and I read it and I thought it was hilarious. It was amazing. And uh and I was really surprised to see that Chop Cop was, was a big part. You right. it was uh, basically the uh the hitchhiker's twin brother come back from Vietnam. And so I called up Kit uh, and I said, Man, this is hilarious. He said, Oh, really? You like it? And I said, Oh, this is great. He said, Well, well, awesome. Well, great, man. we'll, we'll, we'll be in touch. And I, I had no idea what that meant. I you know, to me I thought maybe that meant that that some movie company would fly me to LA so I'd get a, like a free trip to Los Angeles and maybe, you know, spend the weekend there. I figured I'd probably, you know, I would audition. And I wasn't really much of an, uh, an auditioner, you know, an actor, whatever, not a pro by any stretch. So I figured I wouldn't get the job, but I'd at least get a nice, you know, junket to L.A. out of it. And uh, a couple of days later, I got a call from uh, Canon Films Legal Department. <laughs> and they asked if I wanted to negotiate my contract or did I have an agent? And I was just shocked I, I you know I was like what is going on here and i I had met an agent uh, this was like this you know late like Feb, you know February March of 86 and and uh, uh the, the previous Christmas I had I had met like an agent from William Morris at a Christmas party yeah. so just in a very social setting sure and so I I said well let me get back to you to Canon films I called this person up at William Morris I said you know would you you know, negotiate a contract for me. And of course, free money for her. She said, you know, absolutely. Sure. So she called up and, um, she called up Canada and then she called me back and said, well, I have, I have good news and bad news. And I said, well, what is it laid on me? She said, well, the good news is they, they want you for the part of chop chop and Texas chainsaw massacre too. I said, that's great. And then she said, I said, well, what's the bad news? She said, well, I talked to them. I I tried to negotiate, but they wouldn't budge. They're they're only going to pay you scale, Uh, you know, SAG scale. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, at the time as a freelance writer, I was probably making, I bet you I was averaging maybe $250 a week in earnings. Mm -hmm. And so I said, you know, well, geez, what's, what's scale for the Screen Actors Guild? And she said, oh, I think it's,
0: like 1600 a week <laughs> <laughs> I, started
2: laughing. I said well i can handle that
0: yeah you, you guess you might be able to yeah
2: yeah she said i want you to they, they need you to shave your head because you know this character has a plate in his head right the makeup and the prosthetics it's just going to be easier if you shave your head and i said i said yeah that's fine no problem and she said so i told them that you wouldn't be able to get acting work for a while so it agreed to pay you $5,000 to shave your head. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's insane. It really felt like I had like some kind of a, you know, doppelganger, you know, taking lunch and, you know, love you baby and yeah. doing auditions and doing all the <laughs> stuff that I thought I should be doing in order to get a part in the movie. Right. But uh, instead it just uh, worked out. And so I ended up, uh, down in Austin, Texas in the spring of 86. And, uh, you know, uh, worked my butt off and made a bunch of dough and, uh, you know, my life changed profoundly.
0: And so that leads to other film work. And then eventually you are in one of the sequels to evil dead army of darkness. Yeah. I've heard about a scene that you were in that was incredibly dangerous that you couldn't see during. And that led to sort of, if not a blackballing, a very uncomfortable period in your career. Would you mind telling us about that?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, I was I was hired uh, to play the new captain of the Army of the Dead in, in Evil Dead Three, A.K.A. Army of Darkness. And uh, one night, you know, we we did mostly night shoots, um, and uh, we were out in a place called Acton, California, which is up in the mountains. They had mm-hmm. built a uh, a really cool castle, you know, like a you know a mock-up of a castle, um, and there were a bunch of us. Um, and, you know, evil dead characters who were, you know, in, in full battle garb and yeah. uh, a lot of, you know, makeup. And uh, with the evil dead characters, um, there are uh, one of the one of the things that's uniform about the makeup is something called the sclera lens, which is a full eyeball lens. It's not just one that just sticks on your cornea it just goes up your you know goes over your whole half eyeball right and so uh and you can't see anything out of it obviously when they put it in i'm on a horse uh with an eye patch with a little hole board of the eye patch like so that's the only place i can see out of and uh the scleral lens on the other eye and uh i have to lead the charge on the castle uh you know downhill basically a horse gallop with about 20 or 30 horses you know, I'm leading the the group, and um, they gave me another horse. They gave me the reins to a, a second horse, which I'm supposed to hold low because uh, what I'm doing is I'm leading a horse, and it's got a rubber skeleton in the saddle, uh-huh. so it it's got to look like it's riding its own horse. So I'm I lead the charge, and uh, you know, I'm I'm scared. We go very fast, and we're I can't see anything. <laughs> you know, I'm pulling another horse. And uh, we go down to this field of uh, evil dead with, you know, pikes and torches. And so we, we you know, and I we remember basically praying in the saddle, saying, please, you know, keep me in the saddle. And um, so we made it. You know, we did this big charge. Uh, Sam was sitting up on a, on a crane. He had like a little French beret on and a megaphone. And he was, you know, giving the directions to his, you know, his beautiful monsters. And, um, so we did it and I made it and I was very grateful for it. And then he said, okay, well, we've got to do it again. So we had to go back and reset and do it a second time. And, uh, sure enough, there was a charge. And once again, I prayed and held on for dear life. And, uh, you know, we jar- charged down through the, you know, the pikes and the torches and, uh, and I made it. And I was very, very, happy and grateful and then all of a sudden he goes, One more time.
1: <laughs> I was like, oh, no.
2: <laughs> so we regathered, regrouped and recharged and uh I made it that third time. And uh finally I just I was a little frustrated and I wrote up underneath his Sam sitting on the crane and I said, I act too <laughs>
1: And uh,
2: that was you know, I was all kind of in good fun, but I guess. Sure. You know, well you know now that you know since I survived.
0: Well yeah, right, exactly. Uh, but
2: then there was I got I got into some trouble with the uh with the producer because uh my union, the screen actors guild, uh, called me and said, you know, we hear you were involved in a stunt and would you like us to take a look at it and see, you know, if in fact there was a stunt, you might get a uh bump, i.e., you know, extra pay. Sure. And I said, well, you know, I don't really want to you know, I don't want to shine a light on me. That's that's not cool. And they said, no, no, this would be completely anonymous. Oh yeah. So I said, well, you know, okay, sure. And uh, so apparently they requisitioned the footage. Uh, there's a committee of three people that determine whether it's a stunt or not.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, one said yes, two said no, so it wasn't a stunt uh, by committee. Uh, but of course, uh, the producer, you know, I guess either was informed or figured out without a lot of, you know, a lot of heavy thinking that, uh, you know, that somehow this pointed back to me. Right. And so uh, that really, um, you know, put me in a bad place, you know, as right. kind of the guy like the, you know, the, the, the guy that, you know, ran to mommy or something like that. So that, that ended up uh, kind of, uh, you know, that, that colored, my relationship with showbiz for a while there, um, just because it really, you know, it didn't feel good. It felt like, uh, you know, I wasn't being, uh, protected and, uh, you know, I just felt like I had, uh, you know, run afoul of, of big forces.
0: Sure. Right. And so,
2: uh, yeah, that, that was a, that was a, a, a tough one. But, um, the good news is I, I, just somehow kept, you know, working at one thing or another, um, You know, by then I was certainly, I was a dad, you know, in Hollywood trying to make the rent. And, uh, you know, somehow, some way I, uh, finally, because of my cousin, Brad mostly, um, was a, he was actually working in finance, but he was working with a company called Alpine pictures. And they were doing a movie for, uh, they were doing a movie uh, directed by a guy named Mike Mendez. And, uh, It was, um, you know, it it was called The Convent. And um, I had gone in and tried out for some small part, hadn't gotten it. But um, apparently, they, you know, the person they hired didn't work out. So I got, you know, at the 11th hour, I got a call from my cousin saying, yeah, they want you to play this character, uh, you know, the security guard at the convent or something. And you'll be working with uh, Coolio rapper and i i thought well that sounds great well i got in the car and i i hadn't i don't think i had worked since uh, army of darkness and i got in my car and i started driving out to the location somewhere outside of la and uh the closer i got to the set the more i started to uh, this this fear started to rise up in me and um you know, i was getting so scared that i really wanted to just uh turn around and go home and just call and tell them I, you know, I got sick or something. I just said there was such a powerful resistance to showing up for this thing. And, uh, and I remember driving, I got to the set, I got out of the car. There were a bunch of the, you know, the young principals, uh, you know, the, the director and, you know, everybody was you know happy to see me because I guess of, you know, some of my earlier work and, um, and they said, Oh boy, we're so, we're really looking forward to working with you and all these nice things, which to me was just absolutely terrifying. Really? And, uh, I remember they kind of pointed me to my honey wagon, which is basically, a, you know, a little slot in a tractor trailer, like a little, little roomette. And, um, and so, you know, I was like, Oh, great. Yeah. I look forward to working with you guys. And I remember kind of getting, walking up the little stairs and opening the door to my honey wagon and, and I was smiling and turning around and closing the door behind me, and, and literally collapsing on the floor. Wow! I was so frightened. I, I just—I don't think I've ever been that panic-stricken before. I just was like, you know, what do I do? I felt like I was completely trapped, and that I, you know, I was doomed. I just really felt terrible. Right. And uh, you know what happened was I—I I just put on the put on the wardrobe, and ended up, uh, you know just pounding lines and, uh, just trying to remember, just trying to, you know, focus as a professional. Sure. And I, uh, I was called a set and, uh, you know, I got on camera. Um, I, you know, it, it got a little better. I I wouldn't say that as soon as I, you know, started working again, uh, everything just came back to me. I don't think I had really worked since, you know, a couple of years earlier with, uh, army of darkness. So I, uh, but I, so there was this, Powerful resistance. I just to this day it just astonishes me. But I, I got through it. I, you know, I basically just uh, soldiered through. Uh, I look at I look at the convent now, and I look at that the scenes I had with Julio, and it just seems very fun and easy and breezy. <laughs> I'm just amazed at it because <laughs> I had a lot of <clears throat> conflict inside, and um, but I, you know, I got through it, and I think that was really. You know, that that was another turning point where, uh, you know, I managed to uh, get back into showbiz and, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, get a get a happy feeling again.
0: Did you still have that kind of terror on subsequent shoots or did it diminish?
2: No, that was it. I think that just that one time. I mean, the rest of the time, you know, you certainly have butterflies, you know, there's you always want to do good. Um, you know, there's always concerns about, you know, dropping a line or, you know, all that stuff. But, I mean, those are kind of regular concerns, but, um, you know, that was really the only time on the content that was really the, you know, that was the, the, the kind of the make or break job that, uh, they got me kind of back up and running.
0: And now a special word from... Hi Divas, it's me, Rubber Child. And if you want to, I would appreciate it if you could check out the link in the description box down there a little bit lower for my go fund me for my medical transition i would really appreciate it and
1: even if you can't a little share is free a little like is free and i appreciate it
0: and i love you all Mm. Mm. and don't you want to return that love so that's right just take those fingers and go down just a little bit further and uh and (laughs) press right where you know where you should (laughs) oh see you you already feel the difference now Mm -hmm. donate and share. Do both. If you can't donate, just share. Okay. You were doing extra work on Man on the Moon? Right. You had been established in, I guess, a fight scene. Milos Forman wanted you, uh, required you back on the set, but you had landed an acting role in Lansky, an HBO film. Right. Can you tell us what happened then? Because it's such a crazy thing when I read about this story. It's uh, one of those depressing sort of secret bear traps in of the acting world
2: um you know it was i mean i had gotten i had gotten my uh you know i'd gotten my my gig on lansky um you know long after i had done you know a day's work on uh, an extra job um i think it was through central casting Uh and i had done that on on lansky you know the whole the whole um you know the whole thrust uh You know, I mean, acting comes down to, you know, it's certainly, you know, an art form and you have to practice and, and, uh, there's the whole artistic side of it, but then there's also the real side of basically, uh, you know, if you're in the screen actors guild, it's a, it's a, it's a gig. It's how you make your rent money. Sure. And, um, and what's really important is, uh, especially with kids is, um, uh, making your benefits and every year. Now, i guess it's through most unions what happens is you need to make a certain amount of uh, money and in the screen actor's deal it's through production or it's through residuals right um and if you make a certain amount of money you know you get uh you know you make your medical benefits and of course that was really important to me so i did my gig on lansky i yeah. mean excuse me on uh, man on the moon yeah and then um Then I got a uh, I got a a job on Lansky, and actually, yeah, I think I was more of a production assistant, getting you know I I was getting uh, sad vouchers, and um, Lansky. So I was you know working and uh, you know earning toward my medical benefits, and um, uh, Man in the Moon called up and said we need you you know, to come back because they're, they're, they're restaging the scene and you were in such and such a scene, et cetera. And, uh, and I couldn't do it. You know, that was the conflict. It was either, you know, go back to Lansky or, um, yeah, I mean, go back to A uh, Man in the Moon or, uh, you know, continue my, you know, keep my job on Lansky. Right. And uh, with Lansky, I think I had about a, I had about a 10-day gig on So um, that was a tough decision. And I decided, you know, I went back to Lansky. You know, I don't think I've, you know, got an extra job since. <laughs> so, you know, I don't think it wasn't like I was, uh, you know, it wasn't a speaking part. I think it was just basically, you know, if you, you know, a certain camera shot, there I was, I think I was one of the judges, you know, judging the, uh, the wrestling match between him and Jerry Lawler. So it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like a speaking part where I had, you know, big wasn't. That big a deal, but of course, um, you know they wanted me back, and you know I wasn't able to.
0: And then Central Casting can't deliver what they want, so they get mad.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, because Central Casting, you know, uh, serves at the at the pleasure of the producer, and if they say, well, you know, he's not coming, um, you know, I'm sure that yeah, that doesn't that doesn't reflect well on them.
0: Right. Right. Uh, did you, uh, suffer any consequences with central casting, uh, for other roles or did they just primarily do extra? Yeah,
2: roles? I don't think, I don't think I, I, don't think I worked with them again. Um, you know, the good news was that wasn't, you know, not too long after that, um, you know, on what you do as an actor. I mean, that's, you know, that's, you know, I, 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 certainly, you know, look back on that with, with no shame. I mean, that was just, you know, that was business and, yeah, sure. um, uh, it worked out okay because I think I made my benefits for that that particular year, and um, you know, obviously, you know, was you know a young child, actually, two, uh, By then, I uh, you know was perfectly okay with that.
0: But then, not too long after that, you're cast in one of your other incredibly iconic roles, Otis Driftwood in Rob Zombie's House of a Thousand Corpses. How did that all come about?
2: Uh, Yeah. You know, it's funny because I had done, um, you know, a couple of months earlier, I think this was in 1999, um, like a month or two before, you know, so maybe before October, so maybe, you know, August, September of uh, 99, uh, Toby Hooper's son, Tony had called me up and wanted me to reprise the role of chop top in, um, in a in a uh, short film he was making called All American Massacre. It kind of pained me to, uh, you know, because there wasn't any pay in it. It was just basically, you know, I, you know, he wanted he was he was making a short film really to show off his computer graphic skills so he could go around and get a job. That was his calling would be his calling card. And I, you know, I wasn't really excited about it because there was no pay in it, uh, but. Uh, you know, you know, his dad is Toby Hooper. And I guess there was some sense of, you know, wanting to get back into in top top. And also maybe the, you know, maybe Toby would hire me for something else. I don't know, whatever, whatever the thought process was. And so I said to Tony, I said, okay, I'll give you one day. Um, and, uh, so Tony was very happy about that. I showed up and, um, There was a guy, uh, part of the production, uh, a guy named Todd Bates. And Todd was a makeup artist. He worked for Rick Baker. And he was a big Chop Top fan and and, uh, was a fan not only of the character, but also of the makeup and could do the makeup. And Todd was going to play a young Chop Top and young uh, hitchhiker. He was playing both parts. Uh, Because the way that the All-American Massacre was set up was This was kind of a a flashback to before um, the original Chainsaw Massacre. So when Chop Top and the Hitchhiker were still uh, brothers and still in Texas. Okay. And then then it was a flash forward because the whole framework is basically uh, an older Chop Top in jail looking back on his life with, you know, being interviewed by a kind of a Geraldo Rivera crew. And so um, that sounded cool. Um, So I showed up. Todd did the makeup. It was very fun because, uh, you know, the plate was much bigger because it was obviously 10 years after, (laughs) you know, Chainsaw 2. And so a lot of scratching. And a bigger plate. (laughs) And, um, you know, it still hasn't been released, you know, low these many years later. But, uh, you know, I think Tony ended up getting, you know, a lot bigger than just a kind of a I've got a camera, you got a barn kind of uh, short. I think it ended up swelling up to maybe 50 minutes. It got kind of big and crazy. And I think there were some rights, stuff, problems, whatever, whatever. It it still hasn't come out. But uh, because of that, I ended up meeting um, Todd Bates. And a couple months later, in October of 99, I got a call from my friend Elliot Secular, who was the head of publicity for Universal City Walk. And Elliot said that uh, they were doing some kind of a you know, they, they had like a Halloween horror nights at, the, you know, haunted city walk and for the month of October. And that, uh, toward, toward the end of October, they were having, um, a, uh, an award, kind of an in-house universal award show called the Igor Awards. And, um, so he wanted to know, uh, Elliot wanted to know, he said, you're a monster guy, right? And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, you know, our MC dropped out. So we were wondering if you would MC for us. And I said, well, would you like me to come as Chop Top? Because I, you know, because I had, uh, you know, was able to now that I need Todd Bates. And uh, and he said, well, let me, let me ask if that's okay, because I don't think Chop Top is a universal character. So he got back to me and said, well, um, you know, because you were an army of darkness, an army of darkness is a universal property, we're happy to um you know, we're certainly happy to, uh, uh, you know, have you come and, and, and see his chop top. So I got him to stretch the budget a bit so that he I could bring along Todd Bates and Todd brought an assistant and they made me up his chop top. And uh, it was so funny. The, the IGO Awards has evolved into something pretty sophisticated and fabulous with a red carpet and lots of paparazzi. And, you know, I think it's on probably, you know, some tv station i don't know what the heck it is but it's it's grown a lot but back then it was basically just a, a, a low outdoor stage uh bunch of folding chairs you know on a microphone <laughs> yeah and uh and a screen a back screen so that you know with every every award recipient or nominee you know there would be some kind of a screen you know a little bit of their filmography or whatever and um so I was there as top uh, you know, basically in character, you know, introducing people and giving them their little demon statues. Um, and uh, one of the character, you know, one of their award recipients was Rob Zombie. And my older daughter at the time was probably about 13. And so she wanted to come along and, with her little friend Jacqueline, my daughter Jane, because uh, they were very excited about Rob Zombie. Right. And, uh, so I introduced him when it was his time to come up and, um, it was amazing because he, he came out and he, he like took a look at me and then he like did a double take. And then he, you know, I gave him his statue and, uh, it turned out to be the first award he'd ever won. He'd been nominated for Grammys and different things, but he'd never won anything. So I was very excited about that. And he, uh, you know, looked at me and then he, you know, got on the mic and said, uh, if you had told me that the real Chop Top was going to emcee this show, I would have said you're crazy, <laughs> and uh, freaked him out. Uh, the show ended well. Uh, I went backstage to the, I guess, the green room. I think it was like the green, I don't know, pavement. Uh, <laughs> anyway, but I met uh, I met his girlfriend at the time, Sherry. Yeah, uh, who's now his his wife, and uh, his mom and dad were there because he was, you know, they were very happy he was getting an award. And uh, I was able to introduce my my older daughter and her buddy Jacqueline to Rob Zombie, so I got a lot of, you know, daddy points. (laughs) And um, that was it. And then a month later, uh, so it must have been, you know, sometime late November of 99, um, I got a call at home from Rob's manager, Andy Gould, and Andy said uh, Rob has just had his screenplay House of a Thousand Corpses, uh, green-lit at Universal. And he said, um, uh, he wants to know if you want to uh, play this character called uh, Otis Driftwood. And I said, sure. You know, because, again, I wasn't certainly getting any calls from Central Castle. <laughs> they were still mad at me for Man on the Moon. Yeah, And, uh, you, know, uh, you know, I uh, like to earn. So uh, I said, sure. you know, yeah. So I ended up um, going through a bunch of... Uh, Makeup tests and film tests. Um, I still had to be approved by uh, 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 Stacy Snyder, who at the time was the president of Universal Pictures. And this was a studio film, and so uh, you know they weren't you know exactly jumping up and down with you know quote unknowns in the cast. <laughs> right. Uh, but because it was Rob, because Rob Zombie was the name, I think a lot of us like you know Sid Haig and Dennis Simple. I mean, obviously Karen Black is, you know, a huge sure. name. Yeah. Uh but um you know, Sherry was playing like the basically the female lead. Right. Uh Sherry and Sherry had never acted before, had never been in a movie before. So um I think with Rob's star power it got a lot of us hired who otherwise would not have even been considered right. Um for a studio picture. And so you know, we went ahead and and shot it. We got we, we, all of us got approved, and we uh, we shot the movie. That was right. Let's see. I think we did that in in two thousand. So, you know, it wasn't long after that we were finished that there was, you know, nine eleven. There was um, there was a Columbine, right, uh, which uh, you know was uh, really rattled the the, the country. There was also um, uh, some uh, Senate hearings into studio movie studios pandering R-rated material to kids under seventeen. Right, right. Uh, so there was a lot of a lot of uh, political forces at the time, and um, so House of a Thousand Corpses, uh, even though it was in, there were trailers in the theater in 2000. Uh, House of a Thousand Corpses kind of got uh, you know squelched. Um For a couple of years there what what finally happened was that that Rob, I guess, from what I gather, he negotiated some kind of an exit deal from Universal because they didn't want to put it out, but they also gave him the the chance to uh, shop it around and um so for about three years, we wandered in the wilderness. I think he ended up getting it at m g m and then they you know gave us the boots. Uh, And finally, I think Rob was going to, uh, uh, he was planning to try to release it himself. Um, And uh, a friend of mine, uh, a woman named uh, Chayla Johnson, who Uh was the assistant to uh, the head of films at uh, then-headed films at Lionsgate, a guy named uh, Peter Block. Um, uh, Chayla, my buddy, who was a big horror fan, uh, came to a wh- little local horror convention where they were screening House of a Thousand Corpses. Yeah, and he watched it and just reported back to Peter Block and said, "Oh my God, this is amazing! You've got to get this movie." And so, uh, you know, sp- spurred by that, uh, you know, Peter negotiated uh, the release of uh, House of a Thousand Corpses, and I think um, I think opening weekend we made back our whole budget. I mean, we did did Blockbuster. This was right before, this was kind of the beginning of of the golden age of Lionsgate horror. Because I think right after we came out in 2003, um, Eli Roth came out with Cabin Fever. Oh, right. You know, the ball started to roll. I think the Saw movies began around then, so... You yeah, know, that was a very, you know, heady, heady time to be a monster in Lionsgate land. <laughs> and so, um, you know, that was the big deal, like, uh, because uh, House of a Thousand Corpses was such a, you know, big hit relative to its budget. Sure. I think it was about seven million bucks. Um, uh, it was very easy for Lionsgate to greenlight uh, the devil's rejects which is very interesting because I don't think Rob was necessarily looking to do a horror, to to do a sequel. Right. I think at the time he really just looked down because so many horror sequels were really just kind of, you know, tepid rehashes of the original with, with, I think maybe a cynical, you know, goal to make at least some of the money, you know, just kind of keep milking that cow until it ran dry. And uh, without actually, you know, artistically, you know, pushing it, pushing the plot along very much.
0: Or Uh, or even matching up to the original, yeah.
2: Yes, he kind of had not not a great attitude about it. But Lionsgate, I guess, gave him enough freedom so that he was actually able to, you know, uh, pretty much do what he wanted with The Devil's Rejects, which was, uh, you know, an amazing movie and, and still stands the test of time. Uh, it's so interesting because it's actually not even the same genre as House with a Thousand Corpses. It really is uh, more like a a violent crime road picture, as opposed to a you know classic old dark house horror movie like House with a Thousand Corpses.
0: It's an uh, amazingly different film. It, it looks different. I mean, wasn't it shot on different stock than the original, the first film?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And Phil Parment was our DP, who was more like a Macon County line documentary filmmaker yeah. and all this kind of stuff. So he, yeah, and the, the stock was very grainy. Um, it was very interesting, too, because really, if you look at the timeline um, of The Devil's Rejects, it really, it it, it, it couldn't start much more than a, a week or 10 days or two weeks at the most after *Husband, uh, Husband Thousand Corpses ends. Right. With the death of uh, Officer Dell, Tommy Tolles.
1: Right, right. And,
2: uh, you know, Walton Goggins. And then, um, you know, so it it can't really be much more than two weeks. And yet, in that time, um, you know, we've certainly, you know, Mother Firefly has changed (laughs) from Karen Black to Leslie Easterbrook. Um, You know, I've looked more like an almond brother. You know, I'm no longer albino. I've got blue eyes now. I've got a full beard, which I didn't have, in House of a Thousand Corpses. Uh, So much, you know, and, and Captain Spaulding ends up, for the most part, out of makeup, right? Um, and baby, uh, I think does her laugh once in the whole movie, right? You know her uh, her signature husband, uh, thousand corpses laugh.
0: Yeah, she's much more so subdued, it was, it was right? Just yeah,
2: Lock, Stock, and Barrel. It was completely different, but it was an amazing movie that uh, we ended up shooting in thirty days.
0: It's such a grand, sweeping feeling uh, in the film, too. It's kind of it feels kind of epic, and also mm-hmm. the, the music is so different. Everything about it is completely different. It's a really remarkable achievement.
2: Well, it also helped. It also helped that you know because Rob's manager Andy Gould is, is primarily or was primarily a you know a music manager, and so he was able to, I'm sure, get deals on a lot of the songs and you know maybe songs that other people would have had to pay more for or just wouldn't have been able to use. Uh, so Andy really is the unsung hero.
0: The use of Freebird was such a shock because yeah, you, don't expect to have, you don't expect to have a new feeling when you hear that song. And that whole sequence is yeah. a completely new feeling.
2: Well, that to me is like if, if, if Devil's Rejects did nothing more than redeem uh, Freebird after <laughs> Wayne's World, kind of made it like a kind of a joke. Um, right. Then, we, then we, did, we did a lot.
0: I heard you on another show talking about the importance of believing in your own sanity when you play someone who is insane or a psychopath.
2: Well, I mean, that you, you don't play crazy, uh, you know, because that, that becomes so obvious. And it's uh, very, you know, recognizable right, up the, right from the start. Right. And what you do is, if you're, if, you are, if you're playing a crazy person, then you really have to believe that you're the only sane one in the room. Right. So whatever you do makes perfect sense, even though in a context, of moral context of the viewer, maybe it's crazy stuff you're doing. But you have to see it as as morally correct and perfectly understandable, so that you don't you don't end up um, you, you know bringing your own value system uh, you know or you know what is recognized as normal um, you know you don't you don't end up judging yourself or editing your you know your behavior
0: sure, and also letting the viewer interpret this is crazy and not just saying, well, what would a crazy person do? It's very much getting into the character.
2: Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, Bill, before we wrap up, is there a place online, a Twitter or Instagram people should go to, to stay abreast of what you're up to?
2: Yes, I have, um, I have a website called chop tops, com. Um, uh, B H O P T O P S B B Q.com. Uh, that's kind of my basic website. I've got, I think you can, you know, get a few signed pictures on there, play the crazy piano, just generally see weird stuff. Um, and then my uh, social media is at Chop Top Mosley. Uh, that's C-H-O-P-T-O-P-M-O-S-E-L-E-Y. And that's uh, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Great. See, Chop Top seems to kind of dominate my, <laughs> my <laughs> URL. <laughs>
0: Well, um, I really appreciate your time, and thank you so much for a really wonderful interview.
2: Well, thank, thanks for asking me stuff about uh, you know. I, I appreciate some of the more obscure questions. Oh, that's um,
0: great! I'm happy you know, to hear that.
2: Yes, no, no. I think that's that's great, and I you know, and it's funny because you know, going back over something like you know, man on the moon uh, versus um, Lansky.
1: Yeah. Uh,
2: you know, I mean, those are you know that that's part of it. That's part of showbiz. Um, you know, the idea of uh you know, uh getting in trouble with the producer on the Army of Darkness, you know, for what I thought was, you know, a you know, an you know, an anonymous attempt to maybe get an extra, you know, five or six hundred dollars.
0: Yeah, you know? right, exactly. I
2: mean it's it's funny. It's you know, those are those are the you know, the perils and the pitfalls the pit, the pit calls that you don't necessarily read about or hear about. So it's uh you know, I'm always happy to talk about it because uh you know it's you know it's been my experience and uh you know i don't know if it's going to help anybody or you know i don't know what it does but um you know it's fun to talk about
0: yeah it's it's always great to hear um things that you don't hear about in the business i mean especially with that, that one where you were in sort of basically physical jeopardy the entire time you were doing that thing where you couldn't see and you're on a horse and you're leading the other horse and then you end up penalized down the road it's crazy
2: well, you know, uh, you know, the movie set. I, I heard one time, and I, I don't know, it's just hearsay. I haven't seen it, you know, in writing from the U.S. government, but that, um, you know, among the, the top five most dangerous uh, workplaces, you know, acting somehow, movie acting is is within the top five. And you know, a lot of times, you know, things happen. where You're blowing something up, and you know, you step in to blow up an actor, or equipment falls on people. Um, you know, and sometimes what happens is you have other actors who might be frightened. Uh, you know, when the camera is rolling, you know, and they do kind of frightened actions, crazy stuff. I've had that happen where I've you know been hit by props and things because oh. the person was kind of you know drunk or crazy, <laughs> you, know,
1: <it's>
2: like, <laughs> uh, you know, or frightened. Uh, you know, so it's 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 perilous. You know, it's it's not as easy as it looks. Let's put it that way.
0: When you said drunk, do you mean playing drunks, or is there sometimes have you been on sets where there's people who have been drunk?
2: Um, I have. And, uh, you know, that, you know, not not certainly encouraged. I mean, I think secret sipping, but, uh, (laughs) you know, that's never, that's never really, especially when you're doing stunts or stuff with props. Sure. You know, and you smell something on somebody's breath, that's going to be, you know, swinging something at you. (laughs) It's never never (laughs) a good feeling. Not a good feeling. But uh, you know that's that's also a part
0: of it, right? Part of you the know, adventure that
2: doesn't happen that often, mercifully. But uh, you know, <laughs>
0: was it Father Dowling Mysteries? This happened on.
2: Well, you know that was actually the Father Dowling Mysteries when I when I auditioned for it. Um, you know, I, I came out of the audition really feeling bad. I think it was like the first audition of the year, is maybe like a January audition. It was over at Universal. It was in some room with with the director and a couple of producers and. I I just didn't feel like I'd done a very good job. Uh-huh. And I remember uh driving home and, and getting back to my apartment and then just calling up my agent really to apologize <laughs> and uh, <laughs> tell her in advance that I, I didn't get a didn't do a good job but I, I'm planning to go back to acting class, you know. Yeah. I'll I'll fix this. And I called her up and I said, uh, hi, how you doing? She goes, I was just about to call you and I said, Well, why? Figuring that they had called up and said, you know, send us a real actor the next night, <laughs> And she said, you got the job. <laughs> and that's when I realized you can never judge your own audition. You know, that's another kind of an actor axiom. Don't judge your own audition because you never know, you know, the kind of impression you're making on other people. You know, it might not have felt right or, you know, it might have felt off or less than or whatever, but just shut up and, you know, smile and, you know, get out of the audition room because you never know.
0: For more stuff and plenty of things, head on over to Patreon.com slash Craig and Friends.